that at his truth there is no other king like him. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and there is an outline in the bulletin this morning as we dive into this brand new series called Transformed. Today's message is entitled Transformed by by the gospel. Let me just say, first of all, as we before we get started, say a great big thank you to all the staff here at the church that worked tire. I mean, just hours on end. Uh, say thank you to Barb, and she's the one that does all the set design for us, and has has done a lot of work. And Caleb's been here endless hours. All of our lights have been redone this week, and as of yesterday, this place was a mess, and so they got the guys back out here, the electricians, to get it all cleaned up. And so a lot of hard work went into preparation for today. I myself was on a, a sabbatical for a week, so I, I had nothing to do with it, but um, preparing for today in this message. So um, actor T- Tyler Labine, who plays uh, Dr. Iggy on the NBC medical drama New Amsterdam, was nine years old when he noticed that he was getting chubbier than his other two brothers. And uh, One evening while at home, he uh, had his shirt off, and his dad walked into the room, and when his dad saw him with his shirt off, he slapped his gut, and he says, oh my God, how disgusting, look at that thing. And the words that his father spoke in that moment in time triggered something inside of him that would forever change the direction of his life. Inside his mind, from then on, um, his father put him on crash diets Um, treated him different than the rest of the family. Then his father put together a makeshift gymnasium in the basement where he would chart his son's progress in losing weight. And so over time, what Levine began to discover in his thought processes and in his heart and his, his, uh, his emotions was that, hey, the only way I can earn my dad's love is by losing weight. I've got to look a certain way. I, I have to do these things in order to to merit being loved by my own father. He said in this article in People Magazine, at age 11, he would lay in bed at night just dreaming about having liposuction. By age 12, he, he in a very clumsy fashion, attempted suicide, but obviously it it did not work. In his later teens, he did a couple drop-in visits to eating disorder clinics and was diagnosed with body dysmorphia. And here's what he said in this article. He said, I could never see my body the way it is. That disgusting message from when I was a kid is all I could see. And so as a means of dealing with his hurt, his pain, he he chose a coping mechanism, alcohol. And so he, he drank and he drank until he became an alcoholic and things got out of control and his life was an absolute wreck. Words that you speak, that are spoken to you, are very weighty and very powerful. The book of Proverbs reminds us that life and death is held in the power of the tongue. Words that people speak to you, that you maybe heard over your lifetime, you're ugly, you're unlovable, you're a mistake, you're not worthy, they lodge into your memory banks. And the problem with it is, is these words that are spoken to us, although they are lie-based, we see them as truth, and we accept them as truth. And so we start seeing ourselves on the basis of what has been spoken over us. 
And once those thoughts get lodged in your memory bank, it's like a tape recorder that goes on and on and on, day in and day out. The same thoughts you had yesterday were the same primary thoughts you had the day before and the day before that. And, and as those, that tape, that reel, continues to filter those words through your thought processes, your thoughts begin to affect your emotions, and eventually those emotions begin to drive the direction of your life. Welcome to humanity. And over time, what happens in your thought processes is the Bible calls it a mental stronghold. It is a fortress where Satan comes, your enemy, he comes and he, he plays on those, those thoughts that you're having about yourself or replaying those words that were said to you, especially if they were said to you by somebody that was near to, and dear to you, somebody who loved you, a parent or maybe a teacher or a coach. And here's why this is so, so important is because your life is always, always, always moving in the direction of your most dominant thinking. It's always going in that direction. You live out the way you see yourself. And because it brings such shame and hurt and pain within us, we have to deal with that. So we look for ways to cope with our pain. We look for ways to cope with the hurt that is happening in our heart. For some of you, um, it can be a thousand different things, but for some of you, you became a perfectionist is one way that you can try to deal with the pain and the ugliness in your mind. Perfectionism results in things like depression and anxiety and addiction and life paralysis. And due to life paralysis, opportunities are often missed because you are afraid to put anything out in the world because you are fearful that you might be considered imperfect. And people who suffer with a life paralysis like this, they, they oftentimes will not take risks because I can't risk it because what if it doesn't work? And your identity is so wrapped around your perfectionism, you're unwilling to put it on the line. You have to be the perfect spouse. You have to be the perfect child. You have to be the perfect parent. After all, what if people will think of me if my children are not perfect because my identity is now wrapped around my kids? And this is a horrible way to live. And ultimately, our lives become barren and they become broken because of the tape recorder that's going on and on and on inside of our minds. God has provided us a way to experience healing from those thought processes. And the word is transformation. It's the, again, it's the title of this whole series is I want to help you understand what is transformation? How do I experience it? How do I put it into practice in my day in and day out life? This series, again, is based on Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. What is the pattern of this world? The pattern of this world is I live my life trying to navigate through life using my coping mechanisms, depression, anxiety, fear, all kinds of things that are dr emotionally driven. I'm looking for ways to cope with that and express that. That's the way of the world. But he says, but we can be transformed. How do we experience transformation? We experience transformation by the renewing of our minds. Because your mind is the control center of your life. So as you think, so you go. And this is transformation is built around a single word. And it is the word gospel. Gospel. Romans 1.16, Paul, who's the writer of the book of Romans, says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God. 
The power, the same power that God used to resurrect Jesus out of the grave is the same word that is used here. It is the power of God for what? For salvation to everyone who believes. And that word salvation in the Greek means to save and to heal and to deliver. Salvation is not just about receiving the forgiveness of my sins, although that is a part of it, but God also wants to bring healing where there is hurt, where there is pain, where there's depression, where there's anxiety. God wants to deliver us from the thought patterns, the mental strongholds that keep us encapsulated and incarcerated in our hurt and our pain. God wants us to experience freedom in Christ. And really, that's the whole reason the Apostle Paul wrote another book called the book of Galatians on how to live in that kind of freedom. So the word salvation. Today is Easter. It's the day of resurrection. We've come through the deadness of winter and we've come through the barrenness of winter. It's now time for new life to begin. And God wants to take that which is dead and barren in your life and he wants you to experience new life in Christ. The the transforming power of Christ so that God begins to transform and change the way that you think. If you change the way you think, you will change the way you live because how you think affects the way you feel, which affects the ultimate direction of your life. And so that's what this series is really about. God wants to bring you from brokenness to actual health. In Galatians chapter 5, and we'll get to that chapter in another message in this series, Paul contrasts a life that is living, being lived in this here and now, in this world, your life, my life. He contrasts what it looks like, a life that is being lived, encaps, incarcerated in this mental stronghold that the Bible calls the flesh, and the outcome of that kind of life, as opposed to a life that's learned how to walk in the freedom and the power of the Holy Spirit, and the outcome of that life. He makes a direct contrast, and there is a vast difference between how you live life as to whether or not you're living in the flesh as opposed to living in the spirit. So here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. What is of first importance? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. I want you to notice a phrase in verse 2. By this gospel, you are saved. All right? The word salvation is used in three tenses in the Bible. I have been saved. I'm being saved. And I will be saved. And so in this passage, he's really talking about the present, that is the ongoing, I'm being saved. But we're going to break this down because he gives us the, the, gospel, the gospel in a capsule here when he says it is built around the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which takes us back to how we were saved. I've been saved. I've been justified in God's eyes as though I've never sinned. I'm being saved. I'm being released from the power of sin over my life. I will ultimately be saved when I exit this world and I enter into the place that Christ has gone to prepare for me. And God will complete the process that he began the day I gave my life to Jesus. 
So this is kind of important to set this in three tenses. So I want to answer three questions for you this morning. And the first one is this, why do I need to be saved? Why do I need to be saved? Well, it's very simple. I need to be saved because of sin, right? Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. How much of all includes, includes us? <laughs> all of us, right? So there's not one single person who has not sinned. Now, when I use the word sin, a lot of things come to your mind, and people immediately start thinking about, well, if I did this, this, and this, and, and, uh, but sin is really um, far beyond that. It's more than just what I do. It's really, um, it, it is an issue that goes way deeper than just my actions, which is why we need the gospel. So let me take you back to the beginning where it all went wrong, because when God created the heavens and the earth, it says that God created man, Adam and Eve, and he placed them in the Garden of Eden in the very beginning. And in the Garden of Eden, God put a tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the reason God put that tree in the garden, and he said to Adam and Eve, of all the things that I've created, you have access to all of it with the exception of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why did God put that restriction on Adam and Eve? Because he did not want them to experience what was on the other side of that tree, had they partaken in it, right? It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had only experienced good in their lives up to this point, never evil. And so God set a, I always call it a guardrail, like you have guardrails on the road. Why? Because the, the, um, you, know, you don't want to experience what's on the other side of that guardrail. And so if you have a crash, you have a wreck, it's to keep you on you know, the berm of the road, at least so you're not experiencing. So God was trying to protect Adam and Eve. The second reason that tree was there is because God, out of love in his creation of us, gave us the freedom to choose. God will not force you to love him. If you want to ignore God, you want to rebel against God, you want to walk away with God, you want to thumb your nose at God, you have the freedom to do that. Or if you want to love God, walk after him, seek after him, you have the freedom to do that. And so God created us not as robots, but he created us in his image. And God is triune, which means he's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, one essence. So he created us in his image, spirit, soul, and body. That's very important because God said to Adam and Eve, on the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. So what did Adam and Eve do? They took the fruit, they ate it, and they experienced the outcome, the consequences of their actions. In other words, they had a tempter on the outside, this serpent who is really, you know, Satan incarnate there. He's just kind of um, camouflaged himself. And what, in essence, Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation of not being happy with the good things that God had given them. They wanted something more. They wanted what Satan promised them. If you eat of this tree, you will become your own God. You will have the ability to call your shots. You'll have the ability to do whatever you want. You'll be the CEO of your life. There will be nobody in control over you. There will be no authority over you. You can do whatever you want. So on the day that they ate, and this is where it hits us, is that what died that day? Remember, they are, body, they are spirit, soul, body. Not body, spirit, soul. Spirit, soul, body. The Bible puts it in that order because the, 
When God created Adam and Eve, he breathed into them the breath of life, the spirit of God. Their bodies were literally the temple of God himself, even though God walked with them in the cool of the day in the garden. Your soul is your mind, will, and emotions. It's the psychological side of you. Your body is the entity through which you interact with other people. So what happened on that day, they ate of that fruit, partook of that tree, they died immediately in their spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit vacated their spirit, therefore they lost their connection with God himself. They died progressively in their soul, their mind, will, and emotions, so they began experiencing things like fear, guilt, shame. So they hid themselves, they were afraid of God, relationally, they begin to break down. Adam is blaming Eve for the situation. Eve is blaming Adam and the serpent, and Adam's blaming God, and there's blaming going everywhere. And then they tried to justify their actions as though they could, and it was just a royal mess. Now, notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. For so as in Adam all die, so as in Christ all die will be made alive. The result is that when you and I came into this world, we came into this world spiritually dead. We were disconnected from our creator. We had no spiritual life in us. It's like having cable TV without the cable. You got the TV but no cable. You're not getting any signal. Our souls were marred by sin. We, became, we, we were selfish to the core. I mean, if you don't believe that, just have children. You find out really quick. Or if you don't believe it with children, you find out in marriage. You may not have any kids, but if you're married, you know how, what happens when you take two selfish individuals and put them under the same roof. It's chaotic at best. And ultimately, we die in our bodies. And But not only was Adam and Eve affected, but all of creation. The Bible says that all creation groans and awaits like a pain in a childbirth, awaiting for the redemption of the world. That's why you have natural disasters that take place. That's why you have all the tornadoes that are happening down in the south. That do, happens every year uh, about this time of the year. My wife and I and our kids lived in the south in Alabama for a number of years. And we went through three tornadoes. One while we were in Walmart, of all places. And so, you know, we, we are there. We're heading to um, Huntsville to go see Disney on Ice. We're inside of Walmart. Cop cars just start pulling up. And I'm thinking they're being robbed. And no, no, no there's a tornado coming. So they put us in the middle of the store and they piled pillows on top of us. Like when one of those big steel girders comes down on top of me, like that's going to help? Like a pillow? That's going to cushion the blow? My only prayer was, Lord... And if I got to die, please don't make it in a Walmart, all right? Of all places, please not in Walmart. We experienced it in our house, and our house got damaged, and we lived right behind the church, and the church was severely damaged by the tornado. And, and uh, I mean, it's, it's just a horrible thing. And so sin, as it entered into the realm of humanity in the garden, it resulted in disease and sorrow and suffering and death and separation from God, which is why Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. What happened there is what we experience in the here and now. And there are three ways that you know that we have all sinned. Now, it says two ways on your outline. I'm going to throw one in there free of charge. 
Uh, you can just jot in there if you want. But here's the first one is, is that this world, this world cannot satisfy the longing of your soul. It just can't. Our souls long for something this world cannot give it. I don't care how many cars you own. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how many houses you have. I don't care what it is you possess. You'll never fully fulfill the longing of your soul because the longing is for something that is outside of this world. The Bible talks a lot about heaven and how people long to be there. I mean, instinctively, we know that there's something beyond this life. And so Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in our hearts. And so when Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to go away and I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also, he talked about it in terms of home. There's, there is... Uh, my father's house has many rooms. Now, some of your translations might say many mansions, but it's really, the literally, it is many rooms. And so it's this concept of home because home is very powerful. It is an evocative idea of the human heart and experience. We long for being at home. You know, the second highest grossing movie of all time was in 2009. It was called Avatar. Any Avatar fans? Anybody seen the movie? All right. Glad to hear it. <laughs> I'm not the only one. So it's a science fiction movie about the planet of Pandora, wherein the main character must adopt an avatar, like a body that goes into the realm of these aliens, this alien existence in Pandora. And so it is, it is a, a utopia. It is a, a place that's, that's kind of devoid, a lot of the things that we deal with in the here and now in our lives. And so when he was in this avatar state of being, in this body, he could ride dragons and visit floating islands and encounter glowing uh, you know, organisms and all these ex cool experiences, so much so that his heart began to long to remove permanently from this world and in, enter into the realm of avatar and to live in Pandora because there was just a longing there. Now, here's the interesting thing about this movie, is that after it came out, people began writing about their experience with this movie, and what it was is people were experiencing a lot of depression. CNN put an article out, and here was the title of the article, Ways to Cope with Depression of the Dream of Pandora Being Intangible. What? How can people be depressed about something that, first of all, isn't even real, and it it's never been experienced. Well, see, the Bible is saying the same thing. We were made for an existence that transcends this world. In this world, we experience pain and suffering and death and injustice and all those things that create this angst that is deep, deep within us. Our hearts long for an existence that is devoid all of that. Every time somebody dies, you're thinking to yourself, man, I'll, I can't wait to be in a place where there is no more death. And so how does the Bible describe heaven? How does the Bible describe the new heavens and earth that God will one day create? It has no more sin, therefore no suffering and no sorrow and no death. And so we long for that deep within our hearts Therefore, because we long for something we cannot experience in the here and now, no matter what you try to fill that longing with, it will never, it will never work. 
That's why people spend billions of dollars on, on holidays to travel back home because there's just something about the memories of home. Even if your memories may not have been all that great, there is still just something in your heart that drives you back to home, and it's a spiritual homesickness that we experience in our lifetimes, and it reminds us that, listen, we are in a sin-filled world, and we struggle with sin in our own human lives, and therefore we need, we need to be saved. Number two is this, and this is not on your outline, it is because sin results in the sickness of our soul. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3, I won't take the time to read that, but it basically says this. That we were once children of disobedience, right, outside of Christ, and that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and he is basically what's controlling our lives, and we have been controlling by him, and we're controlled by culture, and we're controlled by the world's values that are outside of God's kingdom values, and therefore we became children of wrath. Now, Satan very um, overtly sometimes puts his activity right out there. You know, just recently, the little mouse, you know, has the ex-tennis shoe thing with the satanic pentagram on them and supposedly were made with a drop of blood and had the Nike swoosh on it. And they made these tennis shoes. They only made 666, 666 for the number of Satan. And they sold for over $1,000. It took one minute to sell out, one minute to sell 666 of those tennis shoes. Now, they have since been pulled off the market because Nike is saying, listen, we didn't put our stamp of approval on this. But in preparation for this outlaying of this tennis shoe, he did a video, and it's a very graphic video, Satan sitting on the throne, and he's kind of doing an erotic lap dance on Satan. And here's what he says is that, listen, my target audience are small children. And so it's just the overt activity of Satan that we see in our world, and it's all around us. You know, just this past week, two teenage girls you know, tried to carjack a Pakistani Uber driver and drug him down the streets in New York and flipped the car and killed him. And then after he dies, they, they step over his body so they can get back into the car to get their cell phones because evidently that was more important than his life. And so we see overt acts of Satan's activity all the time. But for us, more of it is subvert activity of Satan that is our lie-based thinking that keeps us in bondage to sin. Here's, I just jotted these down. As a result of the fall and what we experience in the here and now is this, a respect for authority is replaced by rebellion. A clear conscience is replaced by guilt and shame. Blessed Blessing was replaced by physical, spiritual, and eternal punishment. Viewing God as a friend to walk with was replaced by fear. Love was replaced by indifference and even hatred. Intimacy with God was replaced by separation from God. Freedom to obey God was replaced by enslavement to sin. Honesty was replaced by lying and deceit. Self-sacrifice was replaced by self-centeredness. And we are enthroned in a culture of self. Peace was replaced by restlessness, responsibility by blaming, and authenticity by hiding. Does this describe us? Of course it is. This is what we deal with all the time in our own lives, in the lives of people around us. The third thing is the fact that the reason why we need to be saved and we know that we've sinned is because all of us die. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Now, if it stopped there, that would be sad news. But it goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But we all die. Unless you have 
you know, the bigger story and the bigger picture, it kind of ruins our lives. Nobody, we, we try to camouflage death. We try to cover it up. But Paul says, this is of first importance. This is the core of the core. It's above all things. That are not, it's not about our spiritual gifts or end times. It's about the fact that we have all sinned and therefore we all need a savior. Which brings me to the second question, how am I saved? And this is an important question. And the answer to it is this. It is through Christ alone as the essence of the gospel. Salvation comes under no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Christ alone. That's what Easter is about. It's about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, which is the essence of the gospel, because you and I need that that gospel in our lives if we're ever going to experience transformation. Because you have an enemy. Listen, there are only two kingdoms in the world, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God's beloved son. And so you were born into the kingdom of darkness that's ruled and governed by Satan himself and all of his minions. And the only way you can transfer out of that kingdom into the kingdom of God's beloved son is through what? Is through the process of called salvation, experiencing new life in Christ. Colossians 1.13 says, on the day that you do, you're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. So the gospel is Christological. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so if you want to experience transformation, because here's the mistake that we make. We think, well, I got saved one day, and then we just kind of set the gospel aside, got that done, checked that off my list. Now I'm moving on with life. But the re- and the reason why most people do not experience the transformation of Christ from the power of sin over our lives is because it's not about moving on to something else. It's about learning how to go deeper into the gospel. The gospel is applicable to our lives every single day. It is essential if you want to experience transformation. Christianity is very specific about the person and the work of Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life in our place because we couldn't do it. He died on the cross for our sin because we couldn't do it. And he took the wrath of God upon himself because we could not do it. He says Christ died. Unlike Islam, which says Jesus was a prophet who came to earth and left. No, Jesus actually died. What did he die for? He died for, he says, our sins. So, Is salvation just about getting you to heaven? No. That's secondary. If you look at the verse of scripture that actually was read this morning during the time of worship out of 1 Peter 3.18, listen to very closely what he says. For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to what? To bring you to heaven? No, to bring you to God. Jesus paid the way that you and I could come into the presence of God, that we could experience God, that we could be indwelt by God, that our bodies once again could go from spiritual death to spiritual life, that we might become once again the temple of God's presence himself. 
And then you and I will now have a new power source that enables us to experience the depth of the gospel, that enables us to dismantle the mental strongholds that keep us incarcerated to the old ways of life that we've been struggling with for years. If you'll learn how to leverage what God has given to you through the gospel. Everyone wants salvation. A lot of people just want to take Jesus. The question is, do you treasure him above all else? He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure. He is the one that we look to every single day. Jesus was crucified. He died. He was crucified. The Roman soldiers crucified him. Why? Because Rome labeled him as a rebel, an insurrectionist. The Jewish people labeled him as, the leaders of the Jewish religion labeled him as a blasphemer. He claimed to be God. That's blasphemy against God, and therefore, he must be crucified. He must be gotten rid of. He is threatening our position in the Roman Empire, and therefore, they, they incited the people to say, crucify him. Crucifixion was originally by the Persians, picked up by the Romans. It was a means of death that was to inflict the greatest amount of shame and um, pain and um, humility that is humanly possible. This is why they flogged him, which would be like filleting him like a fish. Most people did not live through a flogging, especially the one that Jesus experienced. And so it was to be stripped naked, put on a cross, the, the height of shame and the pain of the nails and the hands and the feet. And then there is, you know, this the humility of the sign above him, taunting him, you know, king of the Jews. And people are mocking him and spitting on him. Listen, most people who were, who were crucified on a cross, it wasn't a cross that was sitting, you know, the person six, eight feet up in the air. It was more like eye level. Listen, Jesus had seen many crucifixions throughout his lifetime. It was the favorite means by which the Romans would, would take care of the insurrectionists, those who were considered enemies against Rome. He knew what was coming through his death, and yet he he chose to lay down his life through such a means of crucifixion. Why? Because he had to shed blood. The Bible said that it's through the shedding of blood that God purifies us from our sin, 1 John 1, 7. And so Jesus became the only mediator between heaven and earth. It's where love and justice came together at the cross of Calvary, and you learn a new word, it's called substitute. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, God brought a substitute, an animal, and took its life and shed its blood and clothed them with the skin of that animal and said, this will, this will provide as a substitute. He gave a sacrificial system all throughout the Old Testament so that they learned about a substitute. It was to cover their sin. It couldn't forgive their sin, had no power to forgive, but it could cover their sin until what? 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming and beginning his earthly ministry. And so Christ's death on the cross is where God's justice was satisfied, so his wrath was poured out upon sin that Jesus had taken upon himself, your sin and my sin, not his sin, so that he might die this death and shed this blood as our substitute because God had to think of a way. How can I satisfy my justice but let those who are guilty of their sin go free? And that was his solution. That God would adorn himself in human flesh and he would become the substitute and he would die the death that we should have died so that we could experience new life in Christ, the forgiveness of our sin. You know, karma says you get what you deserve. Christianity says that Jesus got what you deserved. Sin is substituting ourselves for God while salvation is God substituting himself for us. And Jesus came into the world to do a task, to become our substitute, and he was buried. When he was buried in the grave and he ascended, it says, down into Hades, the New Testament, shield the Old Testament, it was the abode of the dead. It was in two compartments. There was those who um, were dying without relationship, covenant with God, and those who were in covenant with God in Abraham's paradise, uh, or Abraham's bosom called paradise. Jesus descended into paradise, and the reason we know that he did that is because on the day that he was resurrected, he brought everybody in paradise out with him and there was a mass resurrection and he emptied out paradise on the day of his own resurrection and he was raised transformation comes through salvation and it's about setting you free from the penalty of sin the wages of sin is death physical, spiritual eternal death And from the power of sin on a day-out, day-in and day-out basis, and ultimately from the presence of sin, when God creates the new heavens and the new earth, and everything our soul has been longing for will be fulfilled in that time. You know, when you buy something and you walk out of the store, and if you were accused of stealing, how do you prove that you haven't stolen? You have a receipt. The resurrection is God's receipt. See, the the death of Jesus was proof that he was human. The resurrection of Jesus was proof that he was divine. And so he gave us a receipt. Now listen very carefully to the receipt. This is found in Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all, not some, not part, all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross, having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by way of the cross. This is what I love. The gospel has changed heaven's courtroom from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. Because through Christ, your sins can be forgiven and you can be adopted into God's family and your life forever changed. You may come to church and maybe you're tempted in some way. We still struggle, right? The struggle is still real. 
We still fight the lies in our mental processes. And you will fight those lies all of your life until you replace those lies with truth and you begin resting on the truth. What does Paul say? He says that God has disarmed our enemy, right? Satan was defeated. He wasn't destroyed, not yet. He was defeated, and therefore Christ's victory can become your victory because when you're in Christ and he is in you, his resurrection became your resurrection, and that resurrection is not just bodily resurrection from this world into the next world. It is a resurrection of the power of the Spirit of God who now lives inside of you so that you can confront the lies of the enemy with the truth of God's word and make a declaration in the face of your enemy that will enable you to walk victoriously. For example, Let's say, for example, Satan comes to me and says, you know what, Greg, um, you are so unworthy of Christ dying for you. Do you, you know what you've done. You know the things that you, you, you have, you have crimes you've committed, the people that you've hurt, all the things that you ought to feel guilty about and shamed about. Sure, you got this forgiveness thing going on for you. So what? It doesn't mean anything. God still saw, sees what, you, what you've done. He still has a record of your past. Well, that's a bold-faced lie because the Bible says, what does the Bible say? That God took all of my sins and he canceled the debt and he cast them as far as the east is from the west. He plunged them beneath the sea of forgetfulness that when God looks at me, he, because I'm wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus, he doesn't see my sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And so my Bible says, I say to Satan, God demonstrated his love for me. You're right. I don't deserve. I am not worthy. But my Bible says that God so loved me that while I was dead in my transgressions and sins, Christ came and he died for me to declare his love over me. And therefore I declare as in the scripture, I am a new creation in Christ. The old has come and the new has come. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this world, in this flesh, I live for the one who loved me and died for me and gave himself up for me. And you're right, man, I'm not worthy, but he transferred me out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He indwelt me with his Holy Spirit. He has sealed me in the spirit. He's empowered me in the spirit. He enables me to live in the spirit. I've been adopted in the family of God. And therefore I declare I am a child of the living God. So Satan, if you want to come at me with anything else, I got plenty of scripture to come back with it. See, that is truth that stands up against the lie. You've got to get the lie out of your thought processes, and I'll show you how to do that in future messages, and get the truth ingrained and start making statements of declaration based on truth and choose to live by the truth, not by how you feel. Has nothing to do with your feelings, has everything to do with faith. So we're saved by faith through Christ alone. Not by our works, the Bible says. Now here's why I throw this in here. It's because 99.9% .9 of people, you really pin them down on salvation. It all comes down to, well, you know, I've tried to always try to live a good life. I've tried to do what's right by everything. And so they're basing their salvation upon their works. If God set up a system like that, where if I get to the end of my life, my good ways works outweigh my bad works, don't you think he would have told us about it? 
Because I don't find it anywhere in the Bible like, for example, like how many points do I get for doing good things and how many points do I lose by doing bad things and, you know, and how's that po whole point system work out? And, and don't you think that like midway through our life, we would at least get a midterm exam to find out how we're doing along the way? I mean, how would all this work out? We find nothing because, listen, salvation is not based on my works. It's based upon the finished work of Christ alone. And so, he says, the application of the gospel is, I repent and I believe. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. I'm no longer trusting in myself and my works. I'm trusting in Christ's finished work alone. You see, Satan can't dismantle that. He can dismantle my self-righteous works pretty easily. But he can't dismantle the work of Christ. And so faith is the result of surrendering, not striving. It is not simply a belief in a statement, but putting our faith in a person. So how do I experience salvation on a day-to-day -day basis? And let me just say a couple things and we'll wrap it up. Notice it says again in verse 2, By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preach to you. You are not going to overcome the hurt and the pain in your life by just like me coming up here and saying, let me give you three easy steps to this. Let me give you three easy steps to getting rid of your depression. Let me give you three easy steps to overcoming your anxiety. Let me give you three easy steps to how to have a better marriage. There are no three easy steps. There are steps, but they're not easy. Right, so I have to work out what God is working in me. There's, there's a process that takes place. It's not just positive thinking. Positive thinking is nothing but escapism. The Christian answer is that Jesus rose from the grave, which is very different. When I'm facing things, for example, my wife and I are planning on going to Israel in January, and, and she doesn't like to fly, and it's a long flight. And she gets, you know, pretty anxious about that flight, and... And so, but when you look at it with the context of like, well, what if the, what's the worst thing that can happen? The plane goes down, we die. Okay, well, I'm in Jesus. <laughs> For me to die is gain. Um, listen, it's not, it's not the, the, if the resurrection is true, doesn't mean it's going to save me from dying. But watch this, I'm safe in dying because I know where I'm going. See, that, that is a whole different ball game than me just sitting back. Oh, I'm just so fearful. What if I die? What if I die? Well, guess what, Greg? <laughs> One day you're going to die. The question is, are you safe in your death? The gospel says yes. So this is application. And so he says we have to hold firm to the word. And that word holding firm is in the present tense, which means I have to keep working God's Word into, listen, God is giving you the Spirit of God. He's giving you the Word of God in order to bring order out of chaos. Do you know what happened at the very beginning when God created? The Bible opens up and says, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So what was going on right after that? He says the earth was formless and void, but the Spirit of God was hovering over it. And as the Spirit hovered over this formless, void planet, God began to speak, 
And the Spirit of God took the Word of God and he began to create. This is exactly how God does in your life. This is what resurrection power is all about. This is what transformation is all about. It's about the Spirit of God taking the Word of God and and speaking into your mind and into your heart so that he creates out of chaos. He brings peace where there is no peace. He brings order where there is disorder. What happens though if I just like set aside the word of God and I'm not really spending time there and I'm not really getting that into my thought processes. Well, we just revert back to chaos. We revert back to depression. We revert back to anxiety. This is a lifelong process, but as you become more and more efficient with it, it becomes easier and easier for you to walk in the victory that Jesus came for you to give to you. Anybody can start something. The question Paul is saying, can you hang in there? Right? Anybody can start marriage, right? It's easy to get married. Well, you got to work a little bit at it. You got to get somebody to fall in love with you guys. Uh, that's a little bit of work. But we're not real good at that. And so what happens on the day you, you get married? So, you, you're, so your fiance does all the planning. You just sit back and shut up and just listen to her, do whatever she tells you. And so on the day of the wedding, right, you, you get up, you stand before the the pastor and friends and family, and you exchange vows. and no problem exchanging vows, and you seal it with a kiss, and everybody claps, and you make your way out, and you have your receiving line, and have a great reception, have a great time, and go on a honeymoon. I mean, that's all easy, right? That's the easy stuff. But how do you keep hanging on? How do you keep the marriage moving over the long haul? Because marriage isn't always easy, right? So it, it's easy at first, and then it gets hard, and then it gets harder, and then, you know, for us, it's got harder and harder, and then I, my wife calls her mother. I come in. She's calling her mother, and what does she say? Mom, I want to come home. I've made a mistake, and it's like, what? And so <laughs> my mother-in-law said, listen, you married him. You got to work it out. Wisest woman I ever knew. All right, so things got better and better, and then things got tougher and tougher, and things got better, and then they got tougher and tougher and tougher, until one day my wife says, I want a divorce. And what? You want a divorce? What? So now we, we got to work on the marriage, and, and we're, we're trying to hang in there, and it gets better and tougher, then better and better and better. And now, 43 years later, the reason why we have made it this long is because we made a covenantal relationship with God our Father through His Son Jesus Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit and we made a covenantal relationship and commitment to one another that says you know what I'm in this for the long haul through the good times the bad times the tough times the hard times the suffering times I'm going to hang in there no matter what that's how you make it it's not easy I come from a divorced home I know what all that is about and what that creates in the atmosphere of, of a family. And so Jesus says, I've given you my word. I've given you my spirit. Listen, you hold firmly to the word because salvation is not complete. It is progressive in this life. You just got to keep at it. You got to be tenacious and you got to keep at it and you got to keep at it. And so I close with this example. You know, I watch, uh, I love watching things on the Navy SEALs. Like, I'm, this, this, I'm just, uh, like, blown away what, the, the, what a person has to go through to become, actually become a Navy SEAL. And, of course, they climax it with Hell Week. And, I mean, it's literally Hell Week. These, these men and women, they're not allowed to sleep. I mean, it's just bad. 
And so they are testing them to the nth degree. And the test is not so much the physical ability to pass, because they have that. It's all about the mental ability. Will they break down mentally and not be able to finish the course? And they've spent weeks and weeks preparing for this one week, and it's the ultimate test of their mental capacity. This is what life is like. Satan will challenge your mental capacity over and over and over again because he understands he, he's very well in tune with the fact that your mind is the control center of your life and if you're ever going to change your life, you have got to change the way you think because your life is always moving in the direction of your most dominant thinking and that's why God has given us the word. It's why he's given us his Holy Spirit. It's why we can walk in the victory of the resurrection of Christ because God has equipped us to do so. But it's not easy but it's doable. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you. We honor you for enabling us to become what we cannot become on our own. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ who was with you in the beginning because in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you. We have a savior who understands, who is not only God, but is also human and who paid the ultimate sacrifice that we might enter into relationship with you. That he might bring us to you, that he might transfer us into your kingdom. So we thank you, O oh God, where once we were rebellious, we came to know Jesus, and we love him, and we follow him, and we have given our lives to him. And so we surrender to him today afresh and anew. And maybe you're here today, your head bowed. Jesus made a very poignant statement. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And the question that God has for you is, do you believe this? Easter's bottom line question is very personal. It's very pointed, and it rests upon objective truth about Jesus, that there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. Your body is going to die one day. Your soul and your spirit are going to move into the presence of God. And what you believe and what you have done with Jesus will determine where your final destiny rests. And if you're here this morning and maybe during this time, Jesus is just like knocking on the door of your heart. And you realize, you know what? I'm not really saved. I've never made that decision. I've never made that commitment to Christ. He is not the treasure of my heart. He's not what I cherish above all else. And as he knocks on the door of your heart, you are in full control. God will not kick in the door. He's too loving. He's too gracious to do that. The choice is up to you. And I know you say, well, but I'm not that bad. And the reason we say that is because we compare ourselves to others. Listen, Jesus raised three people from the dead. One had been dead for a few moments, one a few hours, and one for four days. Dead is dead. There might be varying degrees of decay, but dead is dead. You need spiritual life, and Jesus is your only hope for that. 
And so I want to lead you in a prayer this morning if that's the desire of your heart. There's no magic in the prayer. It's just you're, you're just uttering your desire to put your full trust and weight in Christ alone for the salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, to be indwelt by his spirit, to be empowered by his spirit and his word to help you heal what is hurting within you, to dismantle the mental strongholds that are so controlling your life. And you might pray something like this, Dear Lord Jesus, I know I have sinned and I am undeserving of eternal life. Please forgive me. Thank you for taking up all my sin upon yourself and dying on the cross in my place, suffering the very death I deserved. I trust that you are the one and only one who can save me from eternal separation from a holy God. So I invite you this morning to be the Lord and the King of my life. I turn my face to you, accepting your gracious gift of eternal life offer of total forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for coming into my life as my personal Savior and Lord. I, I believe in the precious name of Jesus, I pray and ask these things. Amen.